Gilded Age Interpretation and the Plessy Decision. In the United States, 1877 marked the end of Reconstruction and the start of the Gilded Age. The first truly landmark equal protection decision by the Supreme Court was Strauder v. West Virginia, 1880. A black man convicted of murder by an all-white jury challenged a West Virginia statute excluding blacks from serving on juries. Exclusion of blacks from juries, the court concluded, was a denial of equal protection to black defendants, since the jury had been drawn from a panel from which the state has expressly excluded every man of race. At the same time, the court explicitly allowed sexism and other types of discrimination, saying that states may confine the selection to males, to freeholders, to citizens, to persons within certain ages, or to persons having educational qualifications. We do not believe the 14th Amendment was ever intended to prohibit this, its aim was against discrimination because of race or color. The next important post-war case was the Civil Rights Cases, 1883, in which the constitutionality of the Civil Rights Act of 1875 was at issue. The Act provided that all persons should have full and equal enjoyment of, inns, public conveyances on land or water, theaters, and other places of public amusement. In its opinion, the Court explicated what has since become known as the State Action Doctrine, according to which the guarantees of the Equal Protection Clause apply only to acts done or otherwise sanctioned in some way by the State. Prohibiting blacks from attending plays or staying in inns was simply a private wrong. Justice John Marshall Harlan dissented alone, saying, I cannot resist the conclusion that the substance and spirit of the recent amendments of the Constitution have been sacrificed by a subtle and ingenious verbal criticism. Harlan went on to argue that because, one, public conveyances on land and water use the public highways, and, two, innkeepers engage in what is a quasi-public employment, and, three, places of public amusement are licensed under the laws of the states, excluding blacks from using these services was an act sanctioned by the state. A few years later, Justice Stanley Matthews wrote the court's opinion in Yick Wo v. Hopkins, 1886. In it the word person from the 14th Amendment section has been given the broadest possible meaning by the U.S. Supreme Court. These provisions are universal in their application to all persons within the territorial jurisdiction, without regard to any differences of race, of color, or of nationality, and the equal protection of the laws is a pledge of the protection of equal laws. Thus, the clause would not be limited to discrimination against African Americans, but would extend to other races, colors, and nationalities such as, in this case, legal aliens in the United States who are Chinese citizens. In its most contentious Gilded Age interpretation of the Equal Protection Clause, Plessy v. Ferguson, 1896, the Supreme Court upheld a Louisiana Jim Crow law that required the segregation of blacks and whites on railroads and mandated separate railway cars for members of the two races. The court, speaking through Justice Henry B. Brown, ruled that the Equal Protection Clause had been intended to defend equality in civil rights, not equality in social arrangements. All that was therefore required of the law was reasonableness, and Louisiana's railway law amply met that requirement, being based on the established usages, customs and traditions of the people. Justice Harlan again dissented. Everyone knows, he wrote, that the statute in question had its origin in the purpose, not so much to exclude white persons from railroad cars occupied by blacks, as to exclude colored people from coaches occupied by or assigned to white persons, and view of the Constitution, in the eye of the law, there is in this country no superior, dominant, ruling class of citizens. There is no caste here. Our Constitution is colorblind, and neither knows nor tolerates classes among citizens. Such arbitrary separation by race, Harlan concluded, was a badge of servitude wholly inconsistent with the civil freedom and the equality before the law established by the Constitution. Harlan's philosophy of constitutional colorblindness would eventually become more widely accepted, especially after World War II. 
It was also in the Gilded Age that a ruling by the Supreme Court included headnotes written by John C. Bancroft, a former railway company president. Bancroft, acting as court reporter, indicated in the headnotes that corporations were persons, while the actual court decision itself avoided specific statements regarding the Equal Protection Clause as applied to corporations. However, the legal concept of corporate personhood predates the 14th Amendment. In the late 19th and early 20th centuries, the clause was used to strike down numerous statutes applying to corporations. Since the New Deal, however, such invalidations have been rare. Between Plessy and Brown. In Missouri X. Rel. Gaines v. Canada, 1938, Lloyd Gaines was a black student at Lincoln University of Missouri, one of the historically black colleges in Missouri. He applied for admission to the law school at the all-white University of Missouri, since Lincoln did not have a law school, but was denied admission due solely to his race. The Supreme Court, applying the separate but equal principle of Plessy, held that a state offering a legal education to whites but not to blacks violated the Equal Protection Clause. In Shelley v. Kramer, 1948, the court showed increased willingness to find racial discrimination illegal. The Shelley case concerned a privately made contract that prohibited people of the Negro or Mongolian race from living on a particular piece of land. Seeming to go against the spirit, if not the exact letter, of the civil rights cases, the court found that, although a discriminatory private contract could not violate the Equal Protection Clause, the court's enforcement of such a contract could. After all, the Supreme Court reasoned, courts were part of the state. The companion cases Sweet v. Painter and McLaurin v. Oklahoma State Regents, both decided in 1950, paved the way for a series of school integration cases. In McLaurin, the University of Oklahoma had admitted McLaurin, an African-American, but had restricted his activities there, he had to sit apart from the rest of the students in the classrooms and library, and could eat in the cafeteria only at a designated table. A unanimous court, through Chief Justice Fred M. Vinson, said that Oklahoma had deprived McLaurin of the equal protection of the laws. There is a vast difference, a constitutional difference, between restrictions imposed by the state which prohibit the intellectual commingling of students, and the refusal of individuals to commingle where the state presents no such bar. The present situation, Vinson said, was the former. In suite, the court considered the constitutionality of Texas's state system of law schools, which educated blacks and whites at separate institutions. The court, again through Chief Justice Vinson, and again with no dissenters, invalidated the school system, not because it separated students, but rather because the separate facilities were not equal. They lacked substantial equality in the educational opportunities offered to their students. All of these cases, as well as the upcoming Brown case, were litigated by the National Association for the Advancement of Colored People. It was Charles Hamilton Houston, a Harvard Law School graduate and law professor at Howard University, who in the 1930s first began to challenge racial discrimination in the federal courts. Thurgood Marshall, a former student of Houston's and the future Solicitor General and Associate Justice of the Supreme Court, joined him. Both men were extraordinarily skilled appellate advocates, but part of their shrewdness lay in their careful choice of which cases to litigate, selecting the best legal proving grounds for their cause. Brown and its consequences. In 1954 the contextualization of the Equal Protection Clause would change forever. The Supreme Court itself recognized the gravity of the Brown v. Board decision acknowledging that a split decision would be a threat to the role of the Supreme Court and even to the country. When Earl Warren became Chief Justice in 1953, Brown had already come before the court. While Vinson was still Chief Justice, there had been a preliminary vote on the case at a conference of all nine justices. At that time, the court had split, with a majority of the justices voting that school segregation did not violate the Equal Protection Clause. Warren, however, through persuasion and good-natured cajoling, 
he had been an extremely successful Republican politician before joining the court, was able to convince all eight associate justices to join his opinion declaring school segregation unconstitutional. In that opinion, Warren wrote, To separate from others of similar age and qualifications solely because of their race generates a feeling of inferiority as to their status in the community that may affect their hearts and minds in a way unlikely ever to be undone. We conclude that in the field of public education the doctrine of separate but equal has no place. Separate educational facilities are inherently unequal. Warren discouraged other justices, such as Robert H. Jackson, from publishing any concurring opinion. Jackson's draft, which emerged much later, in 1988, included this statement, Constitutions are easier amended than social customs, and even the North never fully conformed its racial practices to its professions. The court set the case for re-argument on the question of how to implement the decision. In Brown too, decided in 1954, it was concluded that since the problems identified in the previous opinion were local, the solutions needed to be so as well. Thus the court devolved authority to local school boards and to the trial courts that had originally heard the cases. Brown was actually a consolidation of four different cases from four different states, the trial courts and localities were told to desegregate with all deliberate speed. Partly because of that enigmatic phrase, but mostly because of self-declared massive resistance in the South to the desegregation decision, integration did not begin in any significant way until the mid-1960s and then only to a small degree. In fact, much of the integration in the 1960s happened in response not to Brown but to the Civil Rights Act of 1964. The Supreme Court intervened a handful of times in the late 1950s and early 1960s, but its next major desegregation decision was not until Green v. School Board of New Kent County, 1968, in which Justice William J. Brennan, writing for a unanimous court, rejected a freedom-of-choice school plan as inadequate. This was a significant decision. Freedom-of-choice plans had been very common responses to Brown. Under these plans, parents could choose to send their children to either a formerly white or a formerly black school. Whites almost never opted to attend black-identified schools, however, and blacks rarely attended white-identified schools. In response to Green, Many southern districts replaced freedom of choice with geographically based schooling plans, because residential segregation was widespread, little integration was accomplished. In 1971, the court in Swan v. Charlotte Mecklenburg Board of Education approved busing as a remedy to segregation. Three years later, though, in the case of Millican v. Bradley, 1974, it set aside a lower court order that had required the busing of students between districts, instead of merely within a district. Millikan basically ended the Supreme Court's major involvement in school desegregation. However, up through the 1990s many federal trial courts remained involved in school desegregation cases, many of which had begun in the 1950s and 1960s. The curtailment of busing in Millikan v. Bradley is one of several reasons that have been cited to explain why equalized educational opportunity in the United States has fallen short of completion. In the view of various liberal scholars, the election of Richard Nixon in 1968 meant that the executive branch was no longer behind the court's constitutional commitments. Also, the court itself decided in San Antonio Independent School District v. Rodriguez, 1973, that the Equal Protection Clause allows, but does not require, a state to provide equal educational funding to all students within the state. Moreover, the court's decision in Pierce v. Society of Sisters, 1925, allowed families to opt out of public schools, despite inequality in economic resources that made the option of private schools available to some and not to others, as Martha Minow has put it. American public school systems, especially in large metropolitan areas, to a large extent are still de facto segregated. Whether due to Brown, or due to congressional action, or due to societal change, 
the percentage of black students attending majority black school districts decreased somewhat until the early 1980s, at which point the percentage began to increase. By the late 1990s, the percentage of black students in mostly minority school districts had returned to about what it was in the late 1960s. In parents involved in community schools v. Seattle School District No. 1, 2007, the court held that, if a school system became racially imbalanced due to social factors other than governmental racism, then the state is not as free to integrate schools as if the state had been at fault for the racial imbalance. This is especially evident in the charter school system where parents of students can pick which schools their children attend based on the amenities provided by that school and the needs of the child. It seems that race is a factor in the choice of charter school. Application to federal government. By its terms, the clause restrains only state governments. However, the Fifth Amendment's due process guarantee, beginning with Bowling v. Sharp, 1954, has been interpreted as imposing some of the same restrictions on the federal government, though the Fifth Amendment does not contain an equal protection clause, as does the Fourteenth Amendment which applies only to the states, the concepts of equal protection and due process are not mutually exclusive. In Lawrence v. Texas, 2003, the Supreme Court added, equality of treatment and the due process right to demand respect for conduct protected by the substantive guarantee of liberty are linked in important respects, and a decision on the latter point advances both interests some scholars have argued that the court's decision in bowling should have been reached on other grounds. For example, Michael W. McConnell has written that Congress never required that the schools of the District of Columbia be segregated. According to that rationale, the segregation of schools in Washington, D.C. was unauthorized and therefore illegal. The text of this podcast is sourced from the Wikipedia Foundation under a Creative Commons attribution, share alike license. The written text has been altered for voice presentation. To view the modified and original text versions visit thelegalpages.com. The content of this podcast is presented for informational purposes only, and is not intended to be legal or professional advice. The Wikipedia Foundation is not affiliated with this podcast.